Welcome to this episode of Toward Justice, produced by the Justice Network of the Free Methodist Church. I'm your host, Eric Logan, along with co-host Reverend Marissa Bedex hefferton In previous podcasts, we've been taking a look at the justice-related resolutions that will be presented and voted on by the Free Methodist Church USA this year at General Conference, or GC23. As outlined in previous podcasts, the Free Methodist Church USA via delegates from every conference meets every four years for worship, to align ourselves with our mission and vision, to address critical issues, and to listen to the spirits leading for the future of the Free Methodist Church. From time to time, it is important for changes to be made to the Book of Discipline, that document that specifies the theology and governance of the Free Methodist Church. The changes are for clarification, to reflect current scholarship and understanding, or to provide application and guidance for our core beliefs. These changes are initiated by submitting written resolutions to the General Conference, where they are considered and voted upon. This episode will take a closer look at GC Resolution 301 regarding capital punishment, introduced by the Study Commission on Doctrine and written by Superintendent Dr. Bruce Cromwell. Joining me is Reverend Marissa Maddox Heffernan, who serves as the co-chair of the Justice Network of the Free Methodist Church. It is wonderful to be co-hosting this conversation with you today, Pastor Marissa. I'm excited to be back with you, Eric. And I'm really excited to have this opportunity to chat with Dr. Bruce, Reverend Dr. Bruce Cromwell. Um, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Of course, Pastor Marissa. Of course, Eric. It's great to be with you both. Yeah. So as Eric prefaced, we have been kind of working on the series, talking through some of the resolutions that folks will see on the table at GC 2023. Um, and our last podcast interview was actually with uh, Reverend Benjamin Wayman and Dr. Kent Dunnington, um, and they were the authors of the resolution on the criminal justice system. Um, and so that was an awesome conversation with them. It kind of took a broader scope. And now we get to sit and talk to you about like the, the more specific issue of capital punishment. Um, but it was really interesting that in the conversation with the other two authors, um, they mentioned that their resolution kind of came almost in response to the Scott's conversation around the resolution that you've presented here. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit more with us, you know, what that conversation was like, what that process sounded like, and how the two go together. Absolutely, absolutely. So I've been on the study commission on doctrine for several quadrennium now. It's been a blessing. And it was probably eight years ago that some point during that quadrennium, I was asked to write a paper on just war theory. What is our approach to this? And doing this studies, and I, and I did, I gave a, a paper, but it became clear to me, like often happens when we sit to write a sermon, I think it's going to go one direction, the spirit leads us elsewhere, or you start to work on a dissertation, and I, it, it ends up morphing. Um, I started realizing I thought we had holes in our discipline when it came to what we talk about with regards to the sanctity of life, particularly in this area, capital punishment. Great statements that life is sacred, that every person is created in the image of God, clear statements about things like euthanasia, birth control, abortion, whatever. But we stopped short with the death penalty. And so I introduced a resolution. Of course, there's a lot of conversation since there are a lot of differing opinions. 
on this. And uh, at the last general conference, I was asked to pull my resolution, introduce an amended one, which I did. Uh, and it recommended that we go back and study it some more. So over these last four years, as we talk about it, we realized part of the issue is the inequity with which capital punishment is applied. The fact that many states recognize there are unjust practices, verdicts, uh, application of it. And so they're saying, hey, we need to stop and pause. And we realize this is not just true when it comes to this ultimate form of you know punishment certainly isn't retributive justice, which we're trying to become people who are known for, or not known for, but rather restorative justice. And so we invited Dr. Wayman and Dr. Dennington to do some work on criminal justice reform, kind of a bigger picture and recognizing that yes, there are people who do horrible things in this world. And yes, they should be held accountable to just laws to the fullest extent of what is a just law with just punishment, and hope for restoration. But that doesn't happen. So they developed their own. It, it just, like you said, kind of grew out of this general conversation of what does it mean to be pro-life people and to advocate for justice for both victims and victimizers, recognizing it doesn't look the same for both, nor should it, but everyone is so created in the Imago Dei and deserves to be treated as a child of God. Amen. And I love the acknowledgement that even those who um, might find themselves in the carceral system don't necessarily belong there. And so there's there's multiple levels of injustice that we see happening within um, our uh, governmental understanding of of justice and and what that means, um, and acknowledging that you know there might be some places that biblically it overlaps, but there's other places where we hold a distinct viewpoint and a distinct understanding of what justice means. Um, so you mentioned that uh, a, a similar resolution had been offered in the past. Um, so I was curious, you know, why is this resolution important now? What is the hope for its inclusion in, in the book of discipline in, in this season? Part of it's, I'm just stubborn. And so when I tried to do it four years ago, and, it, and I, I think there was uh, not sufficient time for a lot of people to pray in the process. Um, another one of your Free Methodist podcasting colleagues Pastor Josh Avery had interviewed me about the same thing, you know, about four years ago. But there was still a lot of pushback, uncertainty, unclarity, which frankly, I think still exists. But that doesn't mean that I don't think we should take another bite at the apple here, take another shot at seeing something that I think matters, uh, how we love one another, how we talk about life, uh, where we recognize inequalities. Those things are perpetually with us. And I don't think by avoiding talking about them, we're doing the church or our people or the people who are concerning being parts of our churches any favors. So it was just a part of the resolution was study it, bring it back. So, okay, bring it back. We'll see where it goes. Well, it's one of the fruits of the spirits, right? Long suffering, stubbornness. They might go hand in hand sometimes. <laughs> so, um, what in in the past with the past resolution and as we're looking forward to you know 
trying to anticipate what its reception will be this time. What what is and what was some of the pushback that had been expressed previously? And what do you think maybe has changed in the past four years? Well, my fear is that those who give pushback, not much has changed. Uh, I think you'll have a lot of people who want to quote from Romans 13, 4, that Paul tells us that, you know, rulers have the right to bear the sword and we need to be submissive to our ruling authorities. I believe that's all true, although I think that interpretation of bear the sword is inappropriate. I don't think in any way, as Paul advocating capital punishments, but simply expressing that there are certain practices the government entails uh, to keep its people safe. Beyond that also, we're not trying to write civil code here. We're talking about what is ecclesiastical? What should the church be about? What do God is calling us to do? And so I don't think anybody, regardless of what people think, uh, and I and I want to be clear, I don't think every side is equally valid. <laughs> so, but regardless of what people think, with the number of cases where African Americans have been killed unjustly, or at least apparently unjustly, even if people don't want to grant it, you can't avoid the fact that racial issues are still huge in this country. And particularly when it comes to the death penalty, race cannot be ignored as a factor. So for example, for almost the last 50 years, so I can I can show statistics that go back to 1976, more than 75% um, of the murder cases that resulted in execution were for white victims, even though nationally only about 50% of murder victims are white. So you can see in places where like, uh, you know, in, in Louisiana back in 2011, the odds of a death sentence were 97% higher if the victim was white than if the victim was black. In California back in 2005, they did a study that those convicted of killing a white person were three times more likely to be put to death than if they'd killed a black person, four times more likely than if they'd killed a Latino. And even then the flip side, in Washington state back in 2014, jurors were three times more likely to recommend death for a black defendant than for a white defendant who committed the same crime. There is no way anybody can look at these and say they're equally uh, treated. You know, race is a factor and that's a problem. And as a church, it's okay for us to acknowledge we live in a culture where that's a problem. We've perpetuated it in different ways, big and small in the churches, hopefully very, very small ways, but it still exists. It's okay to have that conversation. And when states will put moratoria on the death penalty, when civil authorities will recognize this isn't working, to me, I don't know how the church can ever want the state to be more compassionate than we are. Uh, and so it, to me, it's an issue of, look, something's broken here. We recognize all are created in the image of God. We certainly advocate, again, that people should be punished to the full extent of a just law, but that's the key here, is a lot of this is not done justly. And so I don't know that it goes away till we all get to glory, but we can certainly do things that show we're listening, we're paying attention. It's not fair and balanced. And if you ask anybody in either of my two conferences, they'll probably tell you, that among the virtues I prize most highly 
are fairness and equity. If you're going to do it for one, you better do it for everybody. So be consistent. And we're not. Yeah, I, I'm trying really hard not to rabbit trail right now. But as you were talking about the um, that that disparity, you know, something very current, very present is just looking at the the latest mass shooting and the way that that person who was killed by the police because he killed five different people has already been portrayed in the media with much more grace than George Floyd, who was killed by police officers unarmed. Um, the accusation was he passed a fake bill, right? Yep. But the way that the media was so quick to villainize um, the person in that capacity versus how how we see, uh, I think his name is Connor Sturgeon, um, was portrayed as far as the events in Kentucky. Um, it starts from the onset before the the legal system and the carceral system becomes involved. And if we can't, as the church, play a part in the roots of correcting the way that we even just perceive people, mm -hmm. um, then then there's a deeper issue, which I think is where you're digging to. Um, so how, how do we do this? Like, how do we as a denomination start to address the issues of racism and classism, which put the marginalized disproportionately in situations in which they're being impacted, not just by capital punishment, by it, but by the carceral system? Yeah, I think you just have to keep having conversations. I think we have to pray for humility also. Uh, and for the recognition that there are many people who won't get it. And they're not stubborn. They're not willfully blind, I don't think. Sometimes they need data. So again, I can show that, um, you know, some statistics will demonstrate that capital punishment does not lower uh, the rate of murders. Uh, I have a study from 2012 that, for example, showed uh, the South, just the general, you know, South, has consistently had the highest murder rates, but they also have more than 80% of the executions. You can go up into the Northeast, it has fewer than a half of a percent of the executions in the nation, but it also consistently has the lowest murder rate. Now I know data always has to be interpreted. And so again, you can we can do this with like gun violence, which is a whole other issue that would raise all kinds of mess as people wanna talk. But part of this is giving some people facts that are just not true. Uh, most studies that I've seen show, even in Florida, which you know makes the news a lot for making all kinds of decisions, uh, in Florida, the death penalty costs $51 million a year more than what it would cost to punish all first-degree murders with life in prison without parole. I mean, it's more expensive to put people to death. So if you want to appeal to that even, do it, but you'll still have some who I think, like any of us, we bring our biases everywhere we go. We've walked in certain miles in our own shoes. We have experiences that everyone else doesn't share. And it's really easy for me to project onto others, well, this is the way it works. Hey, Pastor Marissa, you're an elder. I'm an elder too. We clearly have had the exact same experiences, right? Well, that is just patently absurd for me to say that. 
you know, and part of it gets to those issues of things that some people don't want to talk about, but like privilege as a white man, the point of privilege is I don't realize the benefits that I get just because of my gender or my culture. Um, and so are we willing to be quiet and to listen? Are we willing to have the conversations to not get caught up and distracted by political tropes, by words that are weighted, and then we get fighting over a phrase instead of the issue at hand? Amen. You know, can we talk about this and listen with respect and be able to push back? Because there also can be a sense, so like with racism, there, there can be a sense where white guilt comes into play and Anglo should not be responding out of guilt. We should be responding because it's right. But how do we have those conversations? Let's sit down and talk and not dismiss it as just an angry person. They're just being political. They're just progressive, whatever. Those sorts of diminished and, and just, you know, dismissive comments are hurtful. And so let's recognize these are real concerns that real people that we really love have. I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier when we were talking before we started, I absolutely loved Liz Cornell's book, The Love Required of Us. And to me, this is the question I think we should apply to criminal justice reform, to race issues, to LGBTQ plus matters, to go through the litany of justice issues that face the church today, is what does love require of us? What does love look like? It is not licensed. Nobody that I know advocates that you let everything go. But it's hard. It's hard to have to sit down and tell people you love that their grandpa died or their dog died. That's hard. Um, it's hard to have to tell people no. It's hard to have to tell your son who's been in and out of prison, I'm not going to keep bailing you out because at some point you've got to hit bottom. Those are all hard things, but sometimes that's what love requires of us. And sometimes I think love also requires that we shut our mouths that we exercise some humility, that we listen, truly try to listen, and come to a place where we can seek to understand, even though we'll never fully grasp it, because for many of us, again, the experience is so foreign, I can't even wrap my mind around this. But it doesn't mean it's not right, or that people aren't speaking their truth, and it's appropriate to give them that place where they can be heard. Because this is the challenge for, I think, the church for pastors, it was certainly what our Lord did, went to those on the margins, went to those who were invisible, went to those who did not have a voice. So how do we speak for the voiceless? How do we get seen by those who are, are often pushed to the side or are unseen? How do we make sure that everyone's story matters and that people can find their place in the church? Even while we have certain you know, ways that we choose to walk and live and try to be holy, we still invite everyone to the table, recognizing that the, the, the dishes we serve to eat might be very, very different. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, it's tough. And I think that's an awesome question of like, what does love require of me in this moment, in this situation? Um, because I think we fail to recognize that sometimes the, the response that love requires is like you emphasize listening and just hearing um, the stories and the experiences of those who have lived something different than, than what we might have experienced and that both can be true at the same time. Yes. Um, <laughs> and it can look different at the same time, um, but we can still give 
give validity and give reassurance and give compassion and grace and mercy, um, even when it doesn't totally match up to what we think it should be or what we think it should look like. No. Um, so that being said, what what does this look like? How how should this resolution impact how our local churches um, engage? You know, is there a local level response? Is there a regional response? Like what, what are, and, and if, if not yet, what, what are the ways that you would encourage um, our local societies and conferences to think about this? Well, I mean, this is, if it's passed, it will be in the part of the discipline that's under the broader topic of sanctity of life. And I think that's part of the issue is how do we view that? You know, we can go back to Deuteronomy 30, where the Mosaic law tells you, you know, I've said before you, life and death, blessings and curses, now choose life that your children may live. And you can love your Lord, your God, and listen to his voice and hold fast to his commands. What's it look like to choose life where capital punishment is a voluntary choice choosing death? We can say it's to be just. But I don't know that it's it's gracious or loving, and it certainly isn't choosing life. How do we go about if we started looking at everyone as someone who deserves life, that I can give you grace, that I can see you as someone for whom Christ died, that you're someone in whom Christ dwells. They are someone who lives securely in the kingdom of God, and they're worthy of redemption and compassion and care. How can I be someone who extends mercy? So it's it's less that I'm thinking churches are going to start, you know, picketing the courthouse or, you know, doing stuff like that. Uh, although, you know, there's appropriate places and times to let our voices be heard, to vote our consciences, to go and to serve those who are incarcerated in different ways where you can. But it's more of an approach to what's it mean to see everyone, again, as created in the image of God and someone who is worthy of repentance and renewal. So what I like to say is it's not exactly synonymous with free, but I, I talk to my conferences a lot about we should be generous Methodists. And so your free Methodism doesn't have to look exactly like mine. There are certain parameters, of course, that we still believe in together. We all do. We're Wesleyan Arminian. We're not Reformed in our theology. We are Trinitarian, you know, in how we believe things. There's things about, you know, how we live and choose to live that we would say, no, we don't think that's God's plan for the way a follower of Christ ought then to live in holiness. And we still believe in sanctification, but your worship, you know, this Sunday may sound very different than at my church. Uh, again, the ways that we interact may look very different. The topics we talk about may be very, very different. And that's okay. We don't all have to be the same, and we're not. One of my churches, very rural place. In fact, it's in a county with 500 people. Not 500,000. The whole county population is 500. And this yeah. wonderful church on Easter Sunday, they might have been pushing 100 people. Um, I don't know. And I've told them, look, there are a lot of our churches in the denomination that are far more than that. I don't know a church anywhere in the world that has 20% of their county that comes to their church, you know, for service. But when I first visited, they apologized because they're all Anglo. And I asked them, how many non-Anglos live within 30 miles of you? And they're like, well, you know, 
none, I guess. So I said, well, you grow where you're planted. You serve who God brings to you. And, and they happen to be up in Nebraska. They're all cattle ranchers. One of the guys flies his plane to church because he flies over his cows, flies 35 miles to church. So you have an airstrip outside the church. It's the greatest, weirdest thing in the world. Yeah. But I said, I'm sure this morning, if an African-American couple walked in, you would welcome them with open arms. Oh, yeah, we'd welcome everyone. I said, well, what about a vegan? And they said, well, no, those people are crazy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> they're all cattle ranchers and we can laugh about it. But there's this sense of, Sometimes we can take on a guilt that there's nothing you can do about it. Right. Or for them, conversations about race, they don't get it because it doesn't apply to them, but they definitely want to talk about alcoholism and spousal abuse. They want to talk about other issues. We can be generous in recognizing not everyone knows how to have this conversation. Not everyone necessarily needs to right now because it doesn't directly affect them. But we do need to call out people who are just flat out ignoring it where you need to have it and you're choosing to turn a blind eye. So my oh, hope yeah. resolution would get us to realize God is the author of life. We are called to imitate our Lord we, who met everybody exactly where they were at. So can we meet you where they're at? The Free Methodist Church is big enough for a lot of different perspectives on a lot of things, not on everything, but on a lot of things. And let's recognize we believe strongly that life is sacred. We're not just pro-birth. We're not just anti-abortion. We're pro-life. And so that extends all the way to the grave as well. Yeah, I think you make an important distinction there too, because too often um, when we start the conversation about justice, it, what's automatically read into it is that it's about race. And so one of the conversations I've had in our conference, which is like in all different sorts of settings and all different demographics, right? There's churches and different things. You know, there's there's been those places that have pushed back because they're like, well, we don't have any black people here. And it's like, no, it's not about, I mean, one, your church should be a reflection of the community that you're in, right? If you're reaching well, it should be a reflection of the community that you're in. But what we're trying to build through the conversation around justice is that in any community, there's going to be at least one marginalized person who needs a place where they feel seen and welcomed and heard and loved. And if the church isn't that place, I don't know what is. So how can we better equip all of us to be more sensitive to anybody who has a story that's different in ours that makes them feel othered or less than as image bearers of Christ. You just hit that word there. How do, how do we become aware of the other? Uh, so in my church in Lansing, before I became a superintendent, we were blessed with a lot of diversity. And the Cultural uh, Awareness Institute, just down the road, Dr. David Livermore does a lot of CQ training. So we took our leaders there often to realize not everyone thinks the way you do. Not everyone approaches life the way you do. We did a training for the superintendents and the bishops last fall or, and for the board of administration with the same exact CEQ training, which I think was wonderful. It was, it was also illumining to many people in that room to realize, oh, <laughs> not everyone thinks about this in the same way. Again, getting back to that, can you be generous? Can you be gracious? Can you recognize we're not all the same? And your issues may not be my issues, 
but we can try to learn how to process them together. We can learn how to be loving together. We can try to walk forward together. And, and the key here is together. Let's just do this and talk about it. So one of our resolutions several years ago that, that I helped write into our ordination process was everyone needs cross-cultural training. And the key there was not you have to go to Africa. The key was, frankly, if you're a city girl, we may need to send you out into the country, Pastor Marissa, because that's a different culture. It's how do I learn to sit across the table from someone who is other than me? How do I learn to listen, respect them, give them space for their story and validity to their story, just as I hope they would give validity to mine? Whatever that other is, how do we welcome them at the table? That's the key. And that's what I'm hoping here is we realize, first of all, I think studies will show that, that on average, about four persons a year are exonerated who have been on death row. And we can say that's not a lot. But over the last 50 years, that's almost 200 people that we would have put to death wrongly. There is no recourse for that. And there's no amount of money that you give to people who are you know, released after decades and decades. It's, it's often a lot, but I don't think it makes up for it. But there's nothing you can do once you put someone to death. Again, it's not about compensation. It's not even just about race. It's recognizing there's lots of issues here. And to choose life and to learn to see other people as equally deserving of life, nothing I can do can remove the fact that I'm made in the image of God. As Mother Teresa once said, we might be in very distressing disguises, but we are still people that are deserving of the grace of God and the opportunity for restoration, repentance, and renewal. So Amen. let's love each other and learn to see each other that way yeah. and not competitors or enemies. So as folks are kind of gearing up for um, for general conference and whatnot, and part of what we press for here, one of our goals is to provide resources. So do you have any resources that that you would recommend to folks who want to better understand the nuances of the discussion around capital punishment? It is tricky and I'm biased. So the resources I give, everyone may not agree with. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of good things out there. I already mentioned Liz Cornell's The Love Required of Us, which isn't specifically at all about capital punishment. But I think it does present a good uh, framework on how do we love all people. Um, there is a great new book that I like by Shane Claiborne. And some will just say, well, obviously, I'm already betraying kind of my bias with the fact that I love it. But his book, Rethinking Life, um, is staggering. It's staggering. He has one that he did on, on capital punishment a few years ago. I can't exactly remember the title. But there's a lot of stuff out there. And even there are websites where you can go to, you know, Death Penalty Research Center, the Pew Research Center puts out statistics all the time. There are plenty of things out there that will demonstrate that there's some things we just don't know. Uh, and again, as we said earlier, data always has to be interpreted, and it can be interpreted in other ways. But if people deeply care about this, when you realize, I think the average length of time someone right now spends on death row is usually a little over 20 years. Um, because they're exhausting all kinds of appeals and attempts to get out. I know like right now, my family and I are waiting for my father to die. 
It could happen today, could happen in two months. It's just, it's that sort of situation where we're at. And nobody wants to see him go, but that waiting and that uncertainty is hard. A lot of people know that. I think not having experienced it personally, but having pastored people in these situations, I think it is much harder for a family who's waiting for that victimizer who did something to their family to be put to death, wondering, will it ever happen? Will we ever get closure? There's another hearing. Are they going to get, you know, those sorts of things. Then to just know right now they have life in prison without the possibility of parole. That at least gives you closure and I can move forward. So I think even then it's more gracious to the victims in some ways uh, when we keep people on in perpetuity and there's no finalization. If if, if you're not going to put them to death quickly, and I'm not advocating we do, then I don't understand why we have a system that just drags on and on and on and on. So, I mean, resources, look, pray, listen to the spirit, talk to one another. Uh, And at General Conference, I hope people vote their conscience, but I truly hope we all can vote. And I'm praying this for myself, that I can vote based on how the spirit leads, based on how I read God's word, and not based on the political party I particularly align with. That should not be the ultimate factor here. Uh, and it shouldn't be the fallout either. If it's right, it's right. And I think we want to be people who stand on the side of God and what's right and not just what's politically expedient. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Reverend Dr. Cromwell. It's been such a pleasure to sit and chat with you a bit. And um, I look forward to having more opportunities to talk and get to see how things play out at General Conference 2023. (laughs) We do. Thank you, Pastor Marissa. I look forward to that as well. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much, Dr. Bruce and uh, Pastor Marissa. And thank you for listening today to this conversation with Reverend Heffernan and our guest, Dr. Bruce Cromwell. We hope that you've learned a bit more about the importance of GC23 Resolution 301 and the importance of Christians being clear about our stance on the sanctity of human life. For now, what are your next steps toward justice? What would it look like for your church to champion and live out uh, restorative justice as a way to demonstrate love for the community around you and to stand against capital punishment? If you have an example to share, you can click on the tab on our podcast and leave us a voice message. Please share this episode with those you want to engage in our justice work. Look for details at justicenetworkfmc.org. We look forward to having you back next time as we work together toward justice.